If you could have three wishes, what would they be? Go ahead. I want to hear some. I want to hear some answers. And you cannot say more wishes, okay? Money. Money. All right. Okay, okay. Be- better rapper than Lil Wayne. I hear you. World peace. World peace. Got your... Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. See, you guys are much, you guys are much um, better people than I am. I was like, I don't know, to fly, to like a little bit, a little bit self-centered. But I want to, I want to ask this question because I saw a lot of you guys perk up, right, when I mentioned Aladdin because you knew what question was coming. Why, why is this such an exciting question for us? This is now rhetorical from here on out, okay? Why is this question exciting for us? Why do we love to think about how we would use those wishes if they were truly possible? Well, I think you could describe it in a few ways. I believe the best way to capture what this question does to us, in us, is this. We are people made to hope, right? We were made to hope. We are forward-thinking people who know that right now is not as it should be, right? And what we need or even what we want, relief, joy, happiness, companionship, could exist in the future, right? So we hope. And I believe we were given this capacity to hope for a reason. And what do I mean by hope, right? I think when we often, again, some of you guys were um, a little bit better than I am, but usually when we answer this or when kids answer this, right, there's usually this sort of pipe dream hopes, right? Those random hopes that we know probably won't come true. But I want us to think more concrete than the pie in the sky wishes, I'll be showing this in our text in a bit, but I wanted to define hope for us immediately, and I'm going to define it like this. Hope is an awareness of both present gloom and future glory. Hope is an awareness of the fact that reality, what is happening right now, is not as it was intended to be, right? You need that awareness in order to hope for better, right? Because if it's already all good, what are, what are we looking forward to, right? We do not run from that reality, but we also know that it's not as it always will be. That we have a future reality, namely the new heavens and new earth, where sin, death, and pain will not exist. Why is it important? I've already hit on this a little bit, but why is it important to be aware of both the present and the future? Well, being only aware of the future and not the present is disembodied erasure. What I mean by that is we, we are not aware of the pain that others are going through if we just ignore the current realities and we just think about the future, right? It's disembodied. You separate it from real struggles, real pain of people, right? God bless you. Uh, only being aware of the present and not future is despairing aimlessness, Right? If we're only aware of how broken our world is and we have no forward thinking, we're going to despair and we're not going to have any sort of thing to look toward, right? It's aimless. And then an awareness of neither is blind optimism, honestly, or pessimism, whichever one you lean, right? We're not aware of what's going on now. We're not aware of what's going to happen in the future. So as a result, we just sort of, ah, I hope this goes well or I hope this goes poor or this is probably going to go poorly sort of stuff, you know? And 
before we sort of dive into what uh, the text says, what this looks like, I just want to be honest with you all from the front. I am bad at hope in general. I don't often feel things before they happen. Uh, if you were here the last Sunday for Dave, I was fine all the way up until I got on stage uh, to do the communion, and I cried. Because I don't, I don't feel dread or hope in any of these scenarios. I'm not very forward-thinking sometimes. I just sort of feel in the moment and feel very strongly. I realized this when I introduced the spiritual practice of lament to my life. Weekly, I would consider, uh, would sit and consider the brokenness of our world through a variety of methods. And in this, I realized I came away often despairing and unable to reconcile some things that were happening in our world uh, along with some things that I read about God. Now, this is not to say you shouldn't lament. It is a practice that has been vital to my spiritual growth and has uh, deepened my love for other people. But I was unable to find the hope in it all. And sometimes it's okay to just sit in the brokenness and not move on from it. I think that's an okay thing. But to always sit there in the despair is not how we were intended uh, to be. So the practice of intentional, tangible hope, tangible hope that is rooted in the truth of future grace is of the utmost importance for those of us that are experiencing significant broken, brokenness on a daily basis, whether that's, uh, that experience is our choice or it's not, right? Okay, so why are we bringing up hope uh, to start our Advent series? Why did we light the hope candle today? Uh, that's a fun coincidence. Advent, maybe not a coincidence, you know what I mean. Um, Advent is defined as the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event, right? We can talk about the advent of the printing press or the advent of uh, Al Gore's internet and how it changed the world, right? Uh, we can talk about the advent of Justin Fields to Chicago and how that changed uh, the demeanor of Chicago. We're still bad, but at least we have hope, right? Or... I heard you, Scott. I heard that laugh. That was a little too loud. Uh, we could also talk about Advent season for Christians through the arrival of Jesus, right? And that's what this Advent season is about. The arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior, our propitiation for our sins, the one who reestablishes our relationship with God. And so naturally, Advent is a season of hope, of anticipation, of considering both of Jesus' comings, his first as a baby in a manger, born of a virgin, and his second, not yet coming, as the Prince of Peace. So for this Advent season, uh, Tiana already hit on it, but we're going to be doing a series called The King is Here, where we will be exploring the prophecies about Jesus' arrival to earth in the book of Isaiah. And just so you have some context for where Isaiah is, where Jesus is life, where we are now, right? The book of Isaiah, I have a little chart here. Uh, it's going to be very, very small, so I highlighted it for you. It's fine. There we go. Um, so the book of Isaiah, I highlighted there. It was written near 700 BC, right? That's 700 years before the year zero, just to be clear. Now, Jesus is thought to have been born sometime between 6 and 4 BC, with his ministry starting in his 30s, so mid-20s uh, AD, right? So we have a greater than 700-year gap between uh, the prophecies here in Isaiah and the life and ministry of Jesus. 
That is a lot of years, right? 700 years. That is older than America. Wait. No. No, that was pretty bad math. No. That is older than a lot of things. Uh, don't worry about it. Um, my wife's a math teacher, so she's in the kids' room, though, so we're good. Um, why, why is this important? Because Jesus fulfilling these prophecies more than 700 years after they written, were written points to the gravity of his birth as a human, right? His life and ministry, his death on a cross, and his resurrection from the dead. It points to the importance of the event that we celebrate every year on December 25th. That he was not just a random good teacher, but he was the fulfillment of the scriptures claim that a Messiah, a Savior, was coming to save the nations from themselves 700 years before he was even born. If Jesus truly did fulfill these prophecies, and we're going to be showing that he did, then his life is the most impactful life to the history of mankind. So before we even get into the text, a question for these prophecies arises. Was the author, Isaiah, writing about Jesus or just a random person? Like, how can we be for sure that he was writing about Jesus, right? Um, why, why do we just make that assumption? Was he aware that he was even prophesying, or were we reading into his meaning? Well, I often find that the best way to interpret the Bible is the Bible. And so to frame the rest of our series, I wanted to show you what Peter says about the prophets of which Isaiah is one. Peter says this in 1 10 or in 1 Peter 1 chapter or verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was coming to you, who spoke of Jesus, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. They were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that they have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. And so Peter is saying to his people at the time, which this is after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? He's saying that the, the, the prophets who wrote 700 years before, they were not writing about their time, and they knew it. They were writing about a future Messiah, a future Christ, a coming king. And he highlights, this is Jesus, right? So they knew they were writing to a future generation about a future person. Isaiah did not know his name was Jesus, right? But he knew it was not someone he would experience in his own time. So with that framing for the rest of our series, we're going to jump into the, our text this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, and, and let's see what it says about Jesus, his coming kingdom, and why it produces hope in us. So verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no gloom for those who are in distress. Okay, why does Jesus start off with nevertheless, right? If I were to walk up, and I just walked up to Fred, and I was like, nevertheless, we press on, right? Like, that doesn't make sense, right? So I don't actually really know why they started the chapter here. Um, but obviously, nevertheless refers back. So let's look in chapter 8. The end of chapter 8 says this. There's a whole longer passage, but for uh, time's sake, 
I just took the last verse. It says, then they will look toward the earth. Uh, these are people who have rebelled against God and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness, right? So this is sort of that hopeless situation, uh, hopeless place that Rihanna might sing about, right? It's just a bad place. So then you go into verse 9, and he immediately starts with hope. He prophesizes of a present gloom, but immediately says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those in distress, right? There is gloom, but nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. He then continues, In the past, he humbled the lands of Zebulun and the lands of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, this is a lot of places, a lot of random things. What's happening here? There are two parts here, right? You can look at his language. He says, in the past, he did this. God did this. But in the future, right, this is also going to happen. So what is he talking about? Let's look at the past first. Uh, well, 2 Kings 15.29 gives us a little bit of context as to what he's talking about in the past. Verse 29 says this. And, then, and sometimes I'm really bad at pronouncing names in the Bible, so I apologize ahead of time. But it says this, In the time of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Peleser, king of Assyria, came and took Ijan, Abel-Beth-Makkah, Genoa, Kadesh, and Hazor. He took Gilead and Galilee, including all of the land of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. In other words, Isaiah is talking about a time when the king of Assyria, an enemy nation of Israel, plundered them, and deported the people back to Assyria. Isaiah is referring to this time, right? A present gloom. So in the past, God has done this. He has allowed Israel to be plundered by an enemy. But then it continues. In the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. They will be walking in darkness, but they will see a light. Now, before I, if you want to go back to the, I think it's the next slide. Um, before I really dive into what he's talking about here, I just wanted to point out that where it says, but in the future he will honor Galilee. Uh, in the ESV it says, but in the future he will glorify Galilee. So this is what I talk about when I talk about the hope. We have a present gloom, right? There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress, a present gloom and a future glory. That's what hope is, right? Recognizing the present gloom and the future glory. So I just wanted to show you that that was from the, the passage. Anyways, now Isaiah is not specific on time here for future glory, right? He just says, in the future. But here's our first clue that he's talking about Jesus specifically. Look at Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17 with me. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Come on now. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali. Like, come on, like, this is awesome. It, I just love when stuff, it, it's, it's easy now, right? Because he literally references it, but this is awesome. The land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned right? So he's saying, Jesus went to that place 
to fulfill the scripture that said that place would see a light. Well, guess what? Jesus is that light, right? And then it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That is the light that Isaiah is referring to. We're going to see it even more here in a bit, but like the beauty of that, that Jesus travels to the specific land and then he begins his ministry in this land to fulfill the scriptures. 700 years later, we have a cool God. So what do we know so far in Isaiah? The people were living in darkness, but that a great light was coming. And we know from the parallel language here in Matthew that the light that to which Jesus or Isaiah refers to is Jesus himself, right? Okay, so now that we have established that this passage is truly about Jesus, here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. We know from our reading that the passage talks about a coming kingdom, right? You see, while this passage does prophesy about the birth of Jesus, for unto us the Son is born, right? I believe that this passage is a bit more actually about his second coming than his first. I think he, he establishes this coming in his first, this kingdom in his first coming, but I think it comes to fulfillment in his second coming. Why do I believe that? There are two main reasons. The first is that the passage, as we will see, speaks of weapons being destroyed and the enemies of God, uh, of God's people being thwarted forever, right? But we know that war, murder, persecution still exist, right? So this cannot fully describe Jesus's first coming, just because we know that uh, his kingdom has not fully come yet. The second, we also know that this passage talks about the government being laid on the shoulders of Jesus, right? But as we know from the gospel's retellings of Jesus's life, many of his followers thought that he would be overthrowing the government, the Roman government at that time. It's why Peter picks up the sword, right? And cuts off the ear. But Jesus does not throw, overthrow the existing government of that time. So this cannot, again, speak of his first coming. So broadly speaking, most of what this passage speaks of has not yet come to fruition. There are some things, that, some things that are already true, but also things that are not yet true, right? So again, with the rest of our time, I want to highlight what then this passage says of Jesus. What kind of king is he, as well as why we have hope in the new heavens and the new earth, this kingdom to come, so let's continue in chapter 9 to see these things. I'm going to reread verses uh, 3 to 5 here. It says, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice because you, as people, rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for fire. Okay, what's going on here? A few things. So first off, Isaiah says you have enlarged the nation, right? Now, I do think that this, so some of these things, prophecies are kind of confusing because it'll be a, a prophet talking directly to the Israelites, right? Uh, to the Israel people. And so some of the things are fulfilled with Israel. Some of the things also then, because he's also talking about Jesus, are fulfilled through Jesus. But not everything is fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. So he's also can be talking about 
the, th the second coming, right? So you can sort of have these layers, and even things can be fulfilled partially at one time and then fully at another time. And so I do think he's saying, like, even after this, uh, your land is plundered, like, Israel will survive, right? The nation of Israel will survive. He will increase them. But I also think it's talking about when Jesus comes, right, he goes to the edge of the kingdom of Israel, right? And, and he begins his ministry, and what we see is that Jesus's uh, bringing in of the kingdom expands the kingdom beyond the Israelites, right? It expands the kingdom to the Gentiles. It's the reason most of us are sitting in here today, right? Most of us do not have uh, Israel fam or family, Jewish heritage, right? And so as a result, we are able to sit here this morning. So I believe he's re referring to the expansion of God's people beyond this nation. And this should, as Isaiah, as Isaiah says, lead to an increase in our joy, right? Now, I, I do want to make a quick side note here, because I think often, I have seen this at least once, uh, that Christian nationalists will often point to this upcoming verse about the the government being on Jesus' shoulders and saying, see, we should establish a Christian nation. And while I don't have time to go into why they're off base using this passage this morning, I do want to highlight this and say this. The, the kingdom of God is inclusive of all nations, right? Jesus came to save, not to destroy. He came to expand the kingdom of God to all nations. And in almost every case of Christian nationalism, I've seen a shutting down of uh, the community of the church right? I have seen this sort of aspect of like, we're going to narrowly define uh, what it means to be Christian in these things that have not used, been used to define Christianity in the past. And it's so that we can be the ones in power. We can be the ones that are most Christian. And that's how we're going to define our Christian nation, right? And it goes directly against what the scripture talks about, about God expanding his kingdom to all nations. And so you're telling me if people are saying this and using this, then they better use the whole thing, Okay. Anyways, all right, that was an aside. We have the kingdom of God expanded to the nations. And then what? What does he say? You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. In other words, Jesus will liberate his people from oppression and violence. I mentioned having a hard time with hope earlier, right? Predominantly, I have a hard time of ho with hope when I think about the oppression and violence toward people society would consider on the margins. And in many times of my lament, I would, for example, consider, consider the people who've been killed via police brutality, right? And, and I, to be completely honest, I would, I would sit there and I would just think about people and I would just say, God, do you care? God, where are you, right? We've had those moments recently in our country with the shooting at Club Q, with the shooting at the uh, Walmart in Virginia. And it's just like, man, God, like, when is it going to stop? When are people going to, when, when are we done, like, murdering, right? It's so hard for me to reconcile, like I said, what I saw uh, with, a, with the loving God of the Bible. But this passage is one that I've clung to over the years. It gave me hope that God saw and God would act. Because let me be abundantly clear, God never sides with the oppressor. And God does not, or does desire for his people to be liberated from that oppression. I can still have a hard time in this present gloom, right? Knowing that people are oppressed all around me. 
but I know that there will come a day where Jesus fully shatters the yoke that burdens them. He will shatter the bar across their shoulders, and he will shatter the rod of their oppressors. It does not mean that I just sit back and idly wait for that day. Do not hear me say that this morning, church, right? That's that disembodied erasure sort of junk. No, I fight for people to experience that now, but there will come a day when all of that has been done away with completely and forever. And we wait for that advent of that peace because God never sides with the oppressor, right? There's some of that hope that we have. Okay, Isaiah 9-6. Now, I ruined the flow here a little bit when I highlighted that we already know that the light is Jesus, right? But if you look at the flow of our passage, you'll see actually up until this point, Isaiah has not yet revealed how God will bring those in the darkness to the light or the what the light is exactly. And then he has this verse, for to us a child is born. And that word for there is doing a lot of work, right? What it's saying is that up until this point, we know that we're gonna move from gloom uh, to glory, right? We're gonna move from darkness to light, right? And how are we gonna do that? For to us, a child is born, a son is given. God is going to do that through the birth of Jesus because Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is fully wise. Jesus is the mighty God. He is fully strong. Jesus is the everlasting father. He is fully caring. And Jesus is the prince of peace. He is the embodiment of justice and righteousness and the government will be on his shoulders. Now, I want to just take a minute to dwell on Jesus coming to us as a baby, right? I want you to just consider how beautiful it is that Jesus condescended from the right hand of the throne of God to take on flesh, knowing it was only the only way to reconcile us to God. Philippians 2 says, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And what does that condescension mean for us? Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus becoming flesh, being born of a virgin in a manger, means he understands us because he became like us. He became human. He knows our pain. He knows our suffering, our hurts. He wept at the death of Lazarus. He was thirsty on the cross. He came low, knowing it was the only way we could go high. So what theme do we see over and over and over here? God cared enough to do something. And he cares enough to do something, right? Including sending his only son that we might know him. He that, so then Isaiah continues in verse 7. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So we're going to end, or we're going to, just so you know, we're landing the plane for those of you who are keeping time. Um, so previous verse establishes that the government will be on his shoulders it doesn't go into detail what it looks like outside of this verse. So what do we know from this verse? It states that his government and peace will know no end. So as his government goes, so does peace, right? But how is peace maintained? As you see later, it says 
that he's establishing and establishing it and upholding it. He's talking about that it is his throne, the throne on which he will uphold his government and peace, right? How will he establish it and uphold it? Uphold it? Sorry, that was a lot of set of words. With justice and righteousness, right? With justice and righteousness. Uh, in 2020, I went to a protest uh, here in the city. We marched a long way with many chants, uh, but the main one was no justice, no peace. At the time, I didn't really think about what it meant, but as I thought about it more and more, I realized how important this really is. You see, we are often lulled into hoping for a false, false type of peace. We often think of peace just as the absence of war, right? However, peace, particularly in the Old Testament, is a far deeper concept than that. The, old, the term in the Old Testament is shalom, that's right. And more than just peace, it has an element of wholeness and perfection to it. So it makes sense that injustice and unrighteousness would disrupt wholeness, right, and perfection, right? You can't have wholeness when someone is experiencing injustice. When injustice exists, only a false sense of peace exists, and only for the oppressor and those who align themselves with them. So no justice, no peace is saying as long as there is injustice, I will not quietly go about my business. True peace does not exist, so I cannot be peaceful right now. And so, if perfect justice and righteousness do exist, if there exists wholeness and perfection, then peace exists. This is why these elements are so important to the kingdom of God, these elements being justice and righteousness. So Jesus, you want to go back to the verse, will reign on his throne, establishing peace through justice and righteousness. And Isaiah says this will happen from that time on and forever, right? So forever we will experience peace. No injustices, no unrighteousness, right? What does Revelation say? No pain, no suffering. Every tear will be wiped away. And don't miss this last verse here. The zeal, zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Meaning this, we, we do, like I said, we care about injustice on this side of eternity. We fight for the oppressed, the voiceless, the marginalized. We do all this. But we also recognize that the zeal of the Lord is what accomplishes it perfectly. We do not have to fall under the burden of establishing this perfection, this wholeness, this peace. I can often lose hope when my efforts don't yield huge results, right? But we can be sure that God is accomplishing it. So consider all of what our passage has said, that our present gloom will not last forever, that a light in the deep darkness will come, that the nation will be enlarged by the nations, that the yoke, the bar, the rod, they will be shattered, that Jesus cares about us and showed us by becoming man, that he is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace, that he will establish this peace through justice and righteousness that lasts forever, and finally, that he will be the one to bring all of this to completion. When we consider all of this, do we have reason to hope, church? We do. You see, the advent of Jesus, his birth in a manger by a virgin mother, that was just the beginning, the advent of our hope. His establishment of God's kingdom began on that day. He already won. He is already the Prince of Peace. He is already in control, but we do not yet see the full effects. 
We do not yet experience full peace. We have not yet had the yoke, the bar, the rod shattered. We live in the already but not yet paradigm, right? And if I'm being honest, the not yet part is often a lot louder for me. But we have hope. We continue to strive for these things because of this hope, not in spite of it.